Are you trying to squeeze the starting solid food stuff into your already busy schedule? Well, I have an all-in-one done-for-you solution that's going to take the guesswork out of feeding your baby. My online program is called Baby Led Weaning with Katie Ferraro. It contains all of my baby led weaning training videos, the original 100 First Foods content library, plus a 100-day meal plan with recipes like the exact sequence of which foods to feed in which order. So if you want to stop trying to piece all this feeding stuff together on your own, I would be honored if you would join me inside of the program. You can get signed up at babyledweaning.co slash program. At a time when change is constant and we are pulled in far too many directions, we need a way to stay present to life and to increase our ability to remain calm, think clearly, and maintain our well-being. Many studies indicate mindfulness improves our mental, emotional, and physical health. On a Mindful Moment with Teresa McKee, you can learn how to practice mindfulness and enjoy its many benefits. Tune in for guided meditations and to hear tips and advice from some of the most respected experts in the fields of mental health and mindfulness. The world truly can be a better place. It all starts with a mindful moment. What underlies food apartheid is that places where there are low income markets do not want to cater to also tend to be Black and Latino or other people of color. There is an underlying form of racism. Hey there, I'm Katie Ferraro, registered dietitian, college nutrition professor, and mom of seven specializing in baby led weaning. Here on the Baby Led Weaning Made Easy podcast, I help you strip out all of the noise and nonsense about feeding leaving you with the confidence and knowledge you need to give your baby a safe start to solid foods using baby-led weaning. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode. And today I am joined by Professor Hannah Garth. Dr. Garth is a sociocultural and medical anthropologist specializing in the anthropology of food. So she teaches at the University of California at San Diego. And her work addresses issues of inequality and structural violence. She has regional interests in Latin American, Caribbean, United States, food and cuisine. She literally took us on a trip around the globe in this interview, but she currently has active research projects in both Cuba and Los Angeles. And she's going to talk a little bit about some of the similarities and some of the differences in the food cultures. She's going to explain to us a little bit about the use of terminology, things we hear a lot like the term food desert. What does that actually mean? really mean? Why is it a not preferable term? She's going to explain to us why in her line of work, she's using terms more like food apartheid and what that means. And then how we as parents can structure our language and our interactions with our children in order to avoid some of the implicit racism and bias that we may not even be realizing we are perpetuating. So with no further ado, I want to introduce you guys and bring on Hannah Garth, to the podcast. She mentions a lot of resources in this episode, and I want to let you know that I'm linking them all up at the show notes for this particular episode at blwpodcast.com forward slash 82. So here goes Black Food Matters and Food Justice with Hannah Garth. Well, hi, Hannah. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks. Thanks for having me. All right. So to get started, I was curious if you could share with our audience a little bit about your background. So How did you come to be interested in the area of anthropology of food? And I'm particularly interested what led to your work and your writing of the books, your books, Black Food Matters, Racial Justice in the Wake of Food Justice, and then also your other book, Food in Cuba, 
The Pursuit of a Decent Meal, which came out in 2020. So like, give us the backstory if you can. Okay. Well, I guess I'll start in the beginning. I grew up in Wisconsin in a relatively small town. And I grew up in town, but it's a pretty rural area. So it's surrounded by farms. And so I feel like growing up in that context, I was aware of food production in a sort of agrarian sense. But I always, I don't know if it's connected to growing up in Wisconsin or not, but I've always been interested in food and cooking and gardening and those kinds of things as a personal interest. When I was in late high school, early college, I thought that I wanted to be a pharmacist. So when I went to college, I started out majoring in biochemistry. And then I realized that I actually really like interacting with people and thinking about the world in terms of social and cultural things. So I changed my major to anthropology and I ended up majoring in anthropology, policy studies, and Hispanic studies. And in some of my early work in undergrad, I realized I was interested in connections between food and health. After I graduated from Rice, I got a master's in public health at Boston University that was focused in global health. And as part of that experience, I implemented a nutrition program in the Philippines. And from my experience working in the Philippines and implementing a nutrition program, I realized that I was interested in some deeper engagement with the problems that cause uneven access in food. And I decided to go ahead and pursue a PhD in anthropology. I went to UCLA and for my doctoral research, I decided to do research on food access in Cuba. And part of the reason that I was interested in Cuba is that is one of the only places in the world that has a national food ration where every single citizen and some uh, immigrants get a food ration almost for free each month that provides them with the basic foods that they need to survive. Their food is not being rationed. They get a ration? Well, it's, it's both. So oh, okay. the way that the socialist food distribution system works is that the Cuban government centralizes all production and distribution. So they ensure that all of the food in the country is evenly distributed through a food ration. So everyone gets like this, a basic amount of food that they need to survive each month. Okay. And then there's also subsidized foods that they can buy off the ration and unsubsidized foods that they can buy off the ration. Um, and those are also controlled by the socialist government. But it's just a way, basically there's sort of tiered pricing system. So there's a way of ensuring that everyone gets basic amounts of free food and that people are not able to sort of hoard the entire food supply. And then there's foods that are available sort of at different price levels. And this system has basically resulted in very low levels of malnutrition and hunger in Cuba. And it, Cuba has been praised by the United Nations for this system. However, when I spent time there and I actually talked to Cubans, they told me that the food system was really difficult for them and that they struggled to access food, that the foods that they were rationed didn't cover enough of the month and that they had to 
innovate ways to be able to access food by purchasing it either at subsidized markets, unsubsidized markets, or on the black market. And so my first book is really about how households go about acquiring food in this system where certain items are scarce or certain items are so expensive that they're out of people's reach. And one of the things that I found was that this system is largely held together by the labor of women. So although the United Nations is praising the Cuban government for the way that it is has constructed its food distribution system, it is really a lot of labor that women are undertaking for their households to go from place to place, spending hours and a lot of energy acquiring food. And another thing that's really important for Cubans is to be able to eat meals that they call a decent meal or a decent and dignified cuisine, which I write about in the book. And they're looking for meals that they understand to be culturally relevant and historically constituted. So like the meals that their grandmother would have made and the meals that they're proud to serve their children and they hope that their children will continue to serve it to their children. So that kind of a thing is what people are after. So that book came out in January with Stanford University Press. And I am still conducting some other research in Cuba, but my second major project has been looking at food justice organizations in Los Angeles. I look at organizations that have the goal of increasing access to healthy food and healthies in quotes for communities in South Los Angeles and East Los Angeles, which are predominantly Black and Latino, respectively. And I basically track how they've developed their mission and their ideas about what kinds of healthy foods need to be distributed and whether or not they have an understanding of racial and economic justice or the forms of racism and discrimination that have really undergirded the problems with the food system in these areas. For that project, I have another single-authored book that I'm working on right now that will come out in a couple of years, but that's the basis of the work for the edited volume that I published with Ashante Reese this year, Black Food Matters, Racial Justice in the Wake of Food Justice. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. If you've been thinking about giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's a convenient, flexible, affordable, and entirely online experience. All you do is just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can also switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. I used to think therapy was just for people who have experienced major trauma, but therapy can help you be at your best no matter what you're going through. So whether it's to learn new positive coping skills, set more realistic boundaries, or just show up as a better version of yourself, BetterHelp is here to help. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. If you want to live a more empowered life, therapy can help you get there and BetterHelp can help you. Visit betterhelp.com slash weaning today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash weaning and get 10% off your first month. 
Now, your work is so interesting because like in the intro, you've taken us from the East Coast to the West Coast, to the Philippines, to Cuba, back to Los Angeles. And I was just curious if you've seen some common underlying themes in the different geographical regions where you've worked that pertain to the matters of food justice that you now work so diligently on? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think starting with from when I was a child, (laughs) one of the things that I noticed when I was a child was how much industrial agriculture was sort of taking over the small farms and family farms that I had grown accustomed to. So industrial agriculture is connected to the global industrial food system, which is really dominated by a dozen or slightly more, slightly less than a dozen multinational corporations. So all of these problems with food are really connected to the global industrial food system and the ways in which it basically is a series of corporations who are seeking to make profit and who are seeking for their shareholders to profit. And they're not necessarily thinking about the most egalitarian or even the most logical ways to distribute food across the globe. So that affects even socialist Cuba, and it certainly affects the way that people access food in a place like Los Angeles. And could you elaborate a bit on the concepts of food apartheid versus a food desert? So how can families who live in food apartheid be supported in both food access and choice? Sure. So food apartheid is really a symptom of a couple of larger problems. One of the larger problems being the global industrial food system and the ways in which our food distribution system is tied to capitalism and profit making. So because the goal of a grocery store is to make a profit, grocery stores argue that they should only establish new stores or retain current stores in parts of the city with higher per capita incomes. And they'll make a case that they should not have a store in areas with lower incomes because they cannot make a profit. And so that's one of the basic building blocks of food apartheid, where you start to see that more affluent parts of a city will have more markets. They'll have nicer markets. They'll have larger markets. They'll have newer markets. And then lower income areas of the city have fewer markets, older markets, smaller markets. And in the case of Los Angeles, just completely different markets. Like the chains, the corporate chains that go into the areas of Los Angeles where I work are not seen in affluent areas of Los Angeles. And they're completely different. But owned by the same corporation? Not necessarily. A lot of the markets in South Los Angeles are much smaller corporations. So they're small grocery chains. There will be some situations where you have like the same grocery corporation that has sort of like different tiers of stores. And you'll see the lower tier in lower income areas and then the more fancy tier in more affluent areas. And I was curious, could you give examples of that? Like would listeners recognize certain stores and not others, or do you just choose to stay brand agnostic? (laughs) I don't usually give examples because grocery chains are so different all over the United States. 
So sometimes. Okay. Can I ask you my question? Then? Sure. So, okay. When I was in, this is certainly not my area of expertise. I went to UC Berkeley for a master's in public health and I did a public health nutrition and international nutrition, but as I worked as a graduate student assistant on a food stamp nutrition education program. So FISNEP at the time. And it was about, I mean, it was educating. It was about like calcium in a predominantly Vietnamese subsection of South and West Berkeley, an audience and a population I had known nothing about. And so I remember we had to give gift cards. You know, you couldn't give cash incentive to people to be in the program. And so I remember my, the head researcher saying, okay, go to this grocery store. And I went and I got a bunch of food for less gift cards. Mm -hmm. And she said, no, 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 no. This population does not shop at food for less. When we're working with the Hispanic population on this part of town and their clientele, then we get the food for less gift cards. And I was like, oh, I didn't know that different ethnic and racial groups shopped at different parts of, and then we started looking at the corporate structure and it was Ralph's and Safeway and then food for less was targeting. Definitely if you walk down the aisles, there's certainly many more Hispanic foods in those stores and they were located in more predominantly Hispanic areas. And it was for me as like, I was a graduate student at this point, but very eye-opening, like, oh my gosh, they made a grocery store, a subset of their main grocery store that is predominantly for Hispanic population. And if I gave the Vietnamese subjects a gift card to Food for Less, they might use it, but there might not be foods that they would have otherwise selected. And it definitely might've been more challenging for them to get there, et cetera. And so for me, whatever reason, whenever I see a Food for Less, I always just, the kind of conjures up like that image of, are they targeting like a certain ethnic and racial subset of customer? Like do the big grocery stores do that? Yes. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, the answer is it's more complicated than it seems. So it is both that stores are catering to a particular clientele and they, they are doing that intentionally. So in places like South LA, the common stores are El Super, Superior, Food for Less, Numero Uno Market, Ralph's, Bonds, and smaller local chains. But even when you go, if you go into a store that has different locations in parts of South LA, so you might have a Ralph's that has a location in a Black area versus a location in a Latino area, and they'll change their signage from store to store. So, you know, in produce, in one section, you'll see frutas y verduras, and you'll see fruits and vegetables in another store. And the types of things that they carry, like, for instance, you're more likely to find a couple different kinds of plantains or taro and other kinds of tubers that are commonly consumed in Latino communities in those stores versus other stores will carry other items. And it kills me. Like I always think of, um, I'm, I live in San Diego and the Hispanic grocery stores is a great place to get Florida calabaza, which is like completely affordable. But if you go to a fancy grocery store, like in a different neighborhood, it costs like five times the price and like, I mean, it has a different name, but it's the same exact thing. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, that's actually one of the first ways that I sort of came into this project was that I was interested in making tostones, which is a Cuban food that is a mashed plantain, but you need to have green plantains. And the grocery stores in West LA, where I live near UCLA, didn't have green plantains. They only had ripe ones. So I just kept driving and driving and driving until I found green plantains. And I ended up in South LA. And it's like you said, like... And you had a car to get there, which is exactly. a lot of people don't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I had a car, but I ended up seeing how, you know, the forms of apartheid are not just about different 
markets that are available, but it's also about different food availability. People use the term food desert all the time. And so I was curious if you could just let us know what exactly does that term entail? So the term food desert is basically an area where people imagine that it's completely devoid of options for healthy food. So it's an area where people think that there are not full service markets and where people are only able to access food at places like liquor stores and corner stores. But the term food desert is seen as, as an offensive and racist term. And it's also related to the term food swamp, which is also offensive and seen as an area that is just inundated with unhealthy food, like a lot of fast food, for instance. But these terms are problematic because they don't get at the underlying structure, the underlying problem that's going on here, which is why people have turned to the term food apartheid, which I think was actually originally coined by Karen Washington, which is also a reference to apartheid in South Africa. So understanding racial apartheid, understanding the separate and unequal systems that we have across the globe, really, for having a different kind of food system in wealthy white areas and having a totally different food system in lower income and communities of color. So Hannah, nutrition is primarily taught through a white-centric lens. And I'm curious to know your opinion and your experience on how this has affected food culture and family meals in the Latinx and Black communities. Thanks for that question. It's good to have a nutritionist that understands that nutrition is primarily understood through a white lens. I think first it's important to say a couple things about race, which is that, you know, scholars understand race as a process rather than a thing. It's a social process that's based on ideologies and practices. And in general, the things that people think of as mainstream or normal in the U.S. are white and are centered around sort of white culture where white people and what they do is positioned as normal and as different from what other people do, other with a capital O. And those others tend to be racialized. So they tend to be Black, Indigenous, people of color, Latinos. And what's also important here is that there is a dimension of power and knowledge going on. So in the sort of white, quote unquote, normalized position, there is an idea that that is best and that is correct and that holds power. And so when we don't see this through a lens of race and whiteness, we can just think that, you know, what the dominant paradigm is, is simply normal and other paradigms are not. But in fact, what's happening is that these are just sort of predominant practices of white people. So one of the things that I think we need to do when we think about this question is to really take a step back, understand you know, your own social position in the problem and in the United States and as a person and slow down and learn about the history of how, you know, certain forms of eating became understood as healthy and how other forms of eating became understood as unhealthy. 
you know, some of the ways you can do that are by reading the work of scholars that have really thought this through. Some people like um, Julie Guthman and Rachel Slocum have written about whiteness in connection to food. But on a more sort of basic level, what ends up happening is that people get really stuck, caught up on nutritional guidelines. So that food pyramid, you know, you get it in school, you get it when you go to the doctor, and people have come to believe that the food pyramid is the sort of end-all be-all of what good and healthy eating is, and that people who eat, for instance, what we call the inverted pyramid, are automatically eating in a sort of unhealthy and quote-unquote bad way. And really the problem is sort of placing way too much emphasis in these nutritional guidelines and not sort of being able to be critical of them, being able to understand that nutrition is an evolving science. Um, It's something that has changed in our lifetimes and it will continue to change as people understand both the complexities on a scientific level and the multicultural dimensions of nutrition. But many people, as they sort of push these nutritional guidelines, end up reproducing whiteness, reproducing the idea that white cultural norms are the norm, rather than spending time understanding the roots of racism and discrimination and redlining and apartheid that have really created the problems of food inequality in the first place. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And I think the perfect example of that, as you mentioned, going to the doctor where if they take your height and your weight, they plot your BMI, your body mass index, which is based on insurance actuarial tables of middle-aged white men in the 1960s, which (laughs) for the most part is not representative of the good majority of that patient population. And yet we're using those standards and saying, I mean, they literally call the quote-unquote healthy BMI range, they call it normal, with the implication being that anything outside of that is abnormal. Yeah, And that's what we're teaching nutrition students. That's what we teach medical students is that BMI matters. And there are so many other factors, of course, that affect health. And yet being a college nutrition educator for the last 20 years, guarantee you everyone who comes out can calculate a freaking BMI and, but not understand these constructs that you're talking about that really drive a lot of health issues and disparities in our culture. Yes, definitely. You are a parent. Parents listening are parents. I'm curious if, given the work that you do, do you have any tips for parents about how they can talk about food and their culture to their kids and to challenge this rhetoric of nutrition and food needing to look or be a certain way in order to be normal or healthy? Like, what can we do to not replicate these problems in future generations? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And, you know, I don't have all the answers here, but I think. One thing to think about is appreciation of other cultures, not appropriation. So actually 
two of the chapters in the Black Lives Matter volume get at this, the one by Judith Williams and the one by Billy Hall, where there's a really a fine line between appreciating other cultures and either appropriating them or othering them so much that it just becomes a way to sort of distinguish different foods from the kinds of foods that you eat at home. So starting with language, right, and the way that you talk about food, not describing non-white foods as ethnic food is probably the first step. Not, you know, thinking that everything is going to be too spicy or too fatty or too sweet or too fried or too anything for your children um, and for yourself. But just thinking about how all of those terms have a negative connotation and they're based on the assumption that what you eat or what you're used to eating is normal or better. So that appreciation and sort of venturing beyond the basics is part of like slowly introducing kids to a broader palette. But what I often see is that it's another form of exoticization and it becomes another way of like sort of becoming a cooler parent than other people because your kids will eat, you know, X, Y, Z food. So trying to get away from that and just appreciating other kinds of foods from what your family normally eats. Can I ask you in your own family, do you try to avoid certain terminology? Like I know personally, I mean, I'm trained as a registered dietitian, but I have seven small children. And I really try not to use the word healthy because then they, they want to know what the opposite is and it's not healthy. So like in nutrition and as a whole, we really try to stay away from the term healthy. Are there words that you don't use that maybe we could learn from to help us avoid some of these, you know, inadvertent, many times it's inadvertent classifications of different categories of foods that we don't even realize we're doing? Like, what do we not say? Yeah, I think, well, one of the things that I do with my kids is to encourage them to eat all kinds of foods and to explain to them. So I'm, I think a lot about macronutrients. So I explain to my kids like what the macronutrient content of what they're eating is without trying to put like a, a moral valence on it. Yeah, like protein is good and this kind of fat is bad. You're just teaching about protein and fat. Yeah, right. So I don't say protein is good and fat is bad. I just say like, oh, okay, you're going to have some cheese that's got protein and fat in it. Okay. Or you don't, you wouldn't say, you know, good carbs and bad carbs, which parents will do like the white carb foods. We're trying to eat more whole grains because they're better for you. You wouldn't differentiate between carbs. No, I, I mean, I encourage my kids to eat all kinds of things, including what other people might label as bad carbs. Like my kids eat white bread sometimes and they eat whole grain bread sometimes. But I just try to sort of empower them with basic nutritional knowledge so that they can sort of understand what the foods they're eating are made out of. And then, you know, hopefully with that knowledge, be able to guide their eating choices based on whatever it is that they guide them on in the future. But I do do things that I do encourage them to eat like more vegetables. (laughs) So that's a basic thing that I do that's maybe, you know, stereotypical parent thing of like, you should eat some green stuff. (laughs) It makes me feel good to know that you do that too, because we all do things inadvertently that might not be the most helpful. And I I love hearing the real side of it too, because it can be intimidating to parents to hear things like this. Oh my gosh, I should say this and I shouldn't say that. And if I say this, I'm going to 
I would give my kids an eating disorder, give them food anxiety or texture aversion. Like, and the point of this conversation, you guys, is not to give you one more thing to be anxious about, but just to open our eyes to some of these issues surrounding food justice that we might not be aware of. So this has been immensely helpful, Hannah. Thank you so much for your insight and for our audience. Where can we all go to learn more about your work? Great. Well, thank you so much for having me. This has been really great. To learn more about my work, I post a lot on Twitter. My Twitter handle is Hannah Garth, one word. And my work is posted up on my website, www.hannahgarth.com. Okay. And that's Hannah, no H. And I'm going to link to all of Hannah's resources, including, if I may, I'd like to follow up and get a little bit more detail on some of the authors that you mentioned. You said, you know, just to be familiar with some of these different people's writings and work to educate ourselves and open our eyes. And that'll be all linked up on the show notes for this episode at blwpodcast.com forward slash 82. Well, thank you so much, Hannah. I really appreciate your time here on the interview. Yeah, thank you. This was fun. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that episode with Dr. Hannah Garth. Again, she specializes in the anthropology of food. She teaches at UC San Diego. She's written a number of really interesting books. And I know she mentioned some of them, but Black Food Matters, Racial Justice in the Wake of Food Justice. And she also wrote another book that she mentioned, Food in Cuba, The Pursuit of a Decent Meal. She's working on a few other books. She mentioned a couple of writers. Her Twitter feed is fabulously informative. So I'm going to link to everything that she mentioned in the podcast episode today on the show notes for this particular episode, which is at blwpodcast.com forward slash 82. Bye now. Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now.